Y'all ever encounter a human magnet? A person that folks just gravitate to. A person who carries that sort of silent power, that je ne sais quoi. The presence is strong. The force is with them. They command the room when they walk in and all eyes are on them. That's the kind of vibe I picked up on when I first met our guest today. My dad used to tell me that the movement of a people begins with the steps of just one person. And I've definitely learned um, that that's true and to not be intimidated by anybody or any place that would have you believe that you're less than, that your voice isn't important. I've learned that one person can um, affect change. And I've tried to bring that into everything that I've done, either in my career or my activism or my artistic uh, vision. This is Henry Munoz, a changemaker in art, architecture, philanthropy, politics, just to name a few. He has worked for the Democratic National Committee, has been responsible for over 100 design projects in the country, played a key role in the foundation of the National Museum of the American Latino in Washington, D.C., and he is only getting started. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Henry about what his parents taught him about creating change, how his interest for the arts and advocacy come together, and all the tremendous work he has already done for the Brown community. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go. I was first introduced to Henry R. Munoz when he received an award last year at the Risado Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Now, he wasn't there in person to receive the award, but he did send one of those thank you videos saying how grateful he was. And y'all, this video slapped. I mean, I felt the love and generosity in his acceptance speech through a video. And then a few months later, this is going to sound like a weird flex, I was invited to the White House for Hispanic Heritage Month, and Henry was there too. And once again, I felt this power. That silent power I was telling you all about. I soon learned that indeed Henry was and is a powerhouse. But before we hear about all the incredible work he's done, I needed to run through our usual batch of fun questions. Favorite Latinidad film? Ooh, like Water for Chocolate. Oh, good one. Cuando Tita sintió sobre sus hombros la ardiente mirada de Pedro, Comprendió perfectamente lo que debe sentir la masa de un buñuelo al entrar en contacto con el aceite hirviendo. Era tan real la sensación de calor que la invadía. Who is a young brown political figure we should all pay attention to? Ooh, there's so many, thank God. <laughs> Not enough, but more than there were 10 years ago. From my home state of Texas, I have gotten to know uh, the county judge in Harris County, which is Houston, Texas, which is one of the largest. Latino communities in the United States. Her name is Lina Hidalgo. She has a lot of courage. Um, she was elected at a very young age, and I've watched her career with great interest. I think she's a bright future leader of this country. Beautiful. To the naysayers who think I'll be intimidated by conspiracy theories or by bullying or by political prosecutions, Bring it on! What artist, whether it's in music, film, or television today, is best representing Latinidad? You know, um, I think that identity is um, 
much more fluid today than when I was growing up. And I've gotten to know over the course of the last two years, a young artist by the name of Ariana DeBose, who um, is mixed heritage. She's a mestiza. Um, she came to prominence uh, playing one of the most difficult roles uh, on Broadway and in the film, who's uh, uh, in films, who uh, the, the role has been played in the past by Cheetah Rivera and Rita Moreno. So imagine stepping into those shoes. And in that role, she won the Oscar, the Screen Actors Guild Award, the Golden Globe, the BAFTA. She is a triple threat. She can sing, she can dance, and she can act. And she uses the light that shines upon her to shine that light on social issues. And I really admire her both as a, as a person, as a leader, and as an artist. You think I want to stay here in a city full of ugly little animals like you? No, gracias. Yo no soy americana. Yo soy puertorriqueña. Uh, we have this Spotify playlist. It's all brown artists of any genre. What song would you put on there? Oh, it would be an oldie. Because um, when I was growing up, every Saturday and Sunday, my dad used to like to go to this big piece of furniture that was a, a, a record player. And he would typically put on mariachi music. But I'll never forget the Sunday that he put on this amazing album that was, uh, I think the title was Edie Gourmet and the Trio Los Panchos. When I'm feeling homesick, I put that uh, on now and think about uh, the lessons that I learned when I was a little boy. And I, I liked it because I'm not, Edie Gourmet, I don't think was a Latina, right? But the Panchos, the yeah. three Franks were. <laughs> and so that blended uh, cultural identity I really loved. And, and, and it still lasts, you know, you, you can, you still hear it every so often. I'll be in a restaurant or something and there's Edie and the Trio los, de los Panchos. And, and so here we are, what, 50 years later, and it's still around. It has such tremendous lasting power. Ojos negros, piel canela, que me a Henry has a resume that blows my mind. He was the first Latino and openly gay man to hold the position as the finance chair for the Democratic National Committee. He has launched multiple national movements to bring change in the Latinx community, including Momento Latino, the Dream.us, and Latino Victory, to name a few. He was born in San Antonio, Texas. His father was a labor farm leader who worked closely with Cesar Chavez in the 1960s. So it is no surprise why Henry is also an activist. You are an advocate for our community, certainly, uh, at the forefront of change. But before we go to the uh, forefront, I want to talk about the Fox, as your father was known. Uh, he was a major figure in the civil rights and labor movement. What did you learn from him? My dad used to tell me that the movement of a people begins with the steps of just one person. And I've definitely learned um, that that's true and to not be intimidated by anybody or any place that would have you believe that you're less than, that your voice isn't important. I've learned that one person can um, affect change. And I've tried to bring that into everything that I've done, either in my career or my activism or my artistic uh, vision, uh, because the country and humanity never really knows what they need until it's created. And, and mm. so I believe that we're fundamentally 
fundamental to the founding of this country, were fundamental to um, culture in the Americas and around the world. And I try and bring that into all of the discussions uh, that I have across um, the many areas of my life in which I work. When did you recognize that your pops was doing really important work? Well, you know, I think I think it's both of my parents. So we were never really the people who had a new car every other year or a swimming pool. What we had was a different kind of inheritance, right? An inheritance of of helping people. And the first time I ever really recognized that was um, I went to a Catholic school um, in San Antonio and I got sent home one day and I didn't really realize, I'm like, what did I do wrong? And I found out when my dad got home that I had gotten sent home because he had the previous weekend organized a picket line in front of the bishop's house uh, around some um, renegade priests who were very much about the migrant farm worker struggle in South Texas. Um, They were being activists and not just parish priests at that point. And so I got uh, punished for something that my um, family was involved in. And I don't remember exactly how I knew it, but I knew that what my parents uh, were standing up for um, was really important because those priests were friends of my family. And I would come home in the afternoon. So there would be groups of people in our family room, all of them talking about you know, what now I recognize were really important conversations around who had and who didn't have. Hmm. And that was during a time, for example, if you talk about the migrant farm worker struggle, when economic opportunity was symbolized by a dollar twenty-five of minimum wage, wow. you know, dollar twenty-five, there was nothing to hide in this experiment that I now understand as democracy. That's when I knew. It was important, and that's what helped me figure out what I wanted to do with my own life. Today, Henry considers himself a cultural activist and a designer of change. How dope is that? Let us all design change. We need it. He has long had a profound love for the arts since he was a kid. After discovering the Mexican artist Pedro Fredeberg, a surrealist best known for his hand chair, a sculpture designed for people to sit on the hand of a palm. For decades, Henry led one of the largest and oldest minority-owned design practices in the country called Munoz and Company when he entered the field of architecture in 1993. The architectural conversations were very limited at, at that point. And so the way that I got through it, because I never went to architecture school. I owned an architectural firm, but I never went to architecture school. I taught myself with my colleagues how to be a good designer and how to design within a language of Latino imprint and mestizaje in the state of Texas and around the country, I learned from artists and I learned from authors and I learned from scholars. They weren't architects either, but they were willing to share um, their experience. That architecture firm sparked other interests and opportunities. Like his mom and pops, he turned his attention to public works. He got involved in Texas politics in the 1990s. You know, when I was a, a young man, I was given a position of responsibility in um, the political world. I wanted to be a public servant, but I didn't want to be an elected official. 
And the thing that I learned from that exploration at that time uh, was that uh, I could be a very good cultural activist, that my strength was uh, to gather around me smart people, thought leaders, people who had something to add um, to the public conversation and to and to give them an opportunity to uh, allow their voices to be heard. And that's what created my activism and architecture, because when I think when I look back on that moment, the kind of architecture that I was interested in, a school that looked like a community, Laredo, Brownsville, San Antonio, right? Uh, a, a school building, a university that looked like a medical school that was reflective of who we are. You know, nobody was was creating that kind of architecture. And so before long, I had a, you know, a laboratory that had artwork in it and an educational building that was bilingual, right? And a public park that told the untold stories of how San Antonio was founded. And it took a long time. And so that idea of how you design transformation, how you design change, um, I, I learned that in architecture and I've carried it with me. And every single experience that I've had, you know, in cultural institutions around the country, like the Smithsonian and the National Park Service, in healthcare, in the streets of New York and around the country. And now I'm hoping to accomplish that in entertainment. That's correct. If you did not catch that, Henry is evolving again. He is getting into the entertainment business. More on that after the break. And we are back with Henry R. Munoz. Henry was explaining to me how he gathers artists and activists and public servants together to build a new kind of community. Remember, a designer of change. Architects of humanity. That's what you have me thinking of. You know, like, first, let's just preach as someone who has six figures of student loan debt, you know, like, and I'm very, I'm not anti-college, I'm anti the cost of higher education. It is so beautiful to see a CEO, uh, who says, I didn't go to architecture school. I, I I learned, I studied, you know, I watched, I was observant of the architectures of humanity and I let that meet me and meet my heart. Uh, your design work is called Mestizo. What does that mean? Well, you know, when I was trying to teach, I had a very good mentor, a man by the name of Tomasi Batafrasto, who at the time was a director of culture and creativity at the Rockefeller Foundation, but he was LGBTQ. And he was originally from San Antonio. And he said, in order to learn, you really have to teach yourself these things. So why don't you take pictures, right? And why don't you um, go take pictures of the things that you see, the buildings that you see that you like or that you admire, or you think are reflective of who you are. And why don't we organize these conversations? And um, he taught me, you know, the the... That if I created a Latino architecture in creating instead of creating an architecture that was inclusive of the cultural blending that exists in this country that we don't talk about much, right? We don't talk about the United States of America as a country of 
impurity and blendedness. We talk, we have a notion of it as pure and separated from each other, you know, then um, it's not the right thing. The right lesson to get to is why our differences make us stronger and how over generations as we interact with each other, whatever that means, that gets to um, what Vasconcelos used to call la raza cosmica, right? The, the people who have everything. Can you give us an example of, like, physically, what does mestizo look like in your architecture work? I think, you know, I'm always interested in the spaces um, themselves, the places that people inhabit. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what a building looks like, but I think it's fundamentally what a building accomplishes when people are within it. Hmm. So for me, Mestizaje begins with listening to people about the way that they view their community, their city, their school, um, their or whatever it is that they're trying to uh, say to themselves first. And and people are very smart. Users are very smart. They, we just don't ask them, you know, how they feel about a building. And when you ask them, they typically give you the answer. It means that every building doesn't look the same. You have to stop and figure out what your response is to that, um, to that community. But the most successful buildings, I think, or spaces, places that I've been able to create are the places that um, bring foster an interaction amongst people. You know, so it may be a classroom, but just as important as a classroom is the space in between the classrooms where young people gather. Mm. It may be a science building, but it's the plaza that sits in front of the science building that brings students together in a place where they have to think about um, what is happening inside the building. I'll never forget that I was hired to do a, a project for the University of Texas. And I went down to the site and my partner said, okay, go figure this out. You go figure out what this science building should be. And when I got there, I saw a planetarium and I go, what's this? And they go, well, it's a planetarium, but we're going to knock it down. So I did some research and I realized it was the only planetarium along the entire Texas-Mexico border. And the closest planetarium was in San Antonio. And I thought, well, we can't knock that down. We need to build a plaza around the planetarium and show these young people that their ancestors were astrologers and mathematicians and scientists and urban planners. And wrapped. so we wrapped the science building around that plaza and it's become very successful. And so when you're in the sixth grade, right, not when you're in college, when you're in sixth grade, you come to the planetarium and you have this program and you stand there and you go, oh, I'm at the University of Texas, uh, Rio Grande Valley. If I keep studying, if I'm, if I'm, if I am given the opportunity, if I take the opportunity, I can grow up to be a scientist. So I, I love that. That's the kind of mestizaje, the kind of cultural identity that I think I was, you know, reasonably effective at um, bringing uh, to light. I'm picking up on a pattern, a superpower of yours, which is that of observation and listening. You know, and I think your mentor told you to take photos. 
right? You have to, first you have to listen to what you love. You're like moving through the world and you're like, oh, I love this building. Let me take a photo of it. This ability to really listen and observe and let that influence you. One, did you learn that from your time in politics representing sort of underrepresented, unserved communities? Or is that a parent's thing? Is it all of the above? What tips do you have for people to listen and observe in their own life? You know, I just don't think we listen enough. And I think we're taught, uh, many of us are taught um, almost at a very early age, I think, um, to say what's on your mind and, um, and to stand up for yourself. And I think that's really important. But I, I think there is an argument to be made for compassion and for uh, sensitivity and for understanding and listening. The only way you get to it is listening to other people. You know, the only way you get to real unity is by listening to other people because no two of us are alike. And so I, I think maybe what contributed to that is that I, I never felt, you know, um, completely comfortable in any situation. Uh, and so I would listen first and, and, and then I could see things. And then they taught me, my mentors taught me, well, you need to help people see what you see now and how to draw out of my own head so that other people could see what I had heard. And, and so I, I just think, you know, listening is, it is a superpower. It's really important. We don't teach it to our children enough. And, and it's important because it's really the only way that you can get to a real sense of cultural understanding. It's very difficult sometimes, you know. I Today, just earlier today, had a very difficult conversation where I wasn't looking forward to listening to what other people had to say to me. Um, but I was glad that I did. That's, and that's it, right? It's like, if you listen, you might, you might hear and see things that don't align with your narrative, your story about yourself. You know, you might learn, you might grow, you might expand. And it takes courage to really listen to someone because it means you might really see them and they might really see you. Um, what motivates you to keep starting these organizations and, and 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 trying new things and yeah, what is what's the driving force? A recognition that you're only on this earth for a very short period of time, and and so I'm very um, motivated to use the time that I have to cre- create change for my country and my community, and for not just Latinos but for communities of color, right? For the people who um, have had no voice, you know, immigrants, the undocumented, um, gay people, women, uh, you name it. Uh, and I find beauty in their experience. And I'm determined, quite honestly, the wonderful thing that this, that my 25 years now of working with the Smithsonian Institution has given me is um, a relentless drive to honor and elevate the stories of people who never see themselves in those places. Uh, They just don't. We don't. And so I feel very fortunate that uh, my career and my activism, and you're right, it's an intersection. It's what my parents taught me. You know, you can't affect 
massive change. You cannot design transformation unless you understand the 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 democratic process, not the, the not the Democratic Party, but the process mm. of democracy in this country. Because people get people have a sense of democracy as something that is should be beneath us or that's dirty or um, you know don't get involved. But the truth of the matter is that all of this, um, and I've taken some heat for it, trust me, that all of the all of the decision making about resources and storytelling and 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 the what happens in a person's life is determined there. And so it, what is most important is the intersection of all of this taking place. Um, that's how we're going to get to not just where we need to get for us, but for the country. That's the strongest expression of the United States of America. It is a fun game of mine to try and have the most diverse resume possible to touch as many fields and places as I can with my art. Henry has done this. He has dipped his toes pretty much into every field you can think of. The arts, activism, politics, and now he is venturing into the entertainment industry. In 2021, he purchased the production company Funny or Die. Well, the first thing I'll say is, you know, I'll tell you a story about Hollywood. Um, <laughs> You know, the, when I was a little boy, I came back to one of those organizing meetings that my parents were doing in the den, and there was a woman sitting on the floor of, of, of that room, and she had two little babies, right? And one grew up to be my mayor, and the other one grew up to be my congressman. And the first person who ever said, I think you can make a real impact in the entertainment business was my congressman, Joaquin Castro. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, well, you know what? Maybe he's right. And I decided, like, fate took me to a moment during COVID where I had an opportunity to reconnect with Funny or Die. And I had remembered from when I was working with President Obama that we were going to talk about putting President Obama between two ferns yeah. <laughs> so that he could explain the Affordable Care Act to the American people with a sense of humor and comedy. And I remembered thinking, wow, what a powerful idea. There's the, there's the, spoonful of sugar for you right and and i fell in love with funny or die all over again because of that combination there of activism and social the willingness to combine comedy with social impact and and i thought through this and thought well if i buy funny or die from will ferrell and adam mckay and and them um then i'm coming into the industry with people that I trust and with um, a way of telling stories, comedy, making people laugh coming out of the pandemic, and that they'll help teach me what I don't know. And I've brought that to this moment. Uh, regarding Hollywood, the numbers just came out from the Annenberg report. You know, the diversity numbers got worse, which is so crazy because the talk is loud. The talk goes up, the, the, the action and change goes down. W what is Hollywood 
not clicking in? Why do the numbers keep dropping if we know it's good for business? It's a very complicated um, issue because this question that you're asking me about, why do the numbers get worse instead of getting better? You know, some of that has to do with um, the fact that the industry is going through a very difficult period where it's evolving. Some of it has to do with the lack of uh, financial oversight that we have within the industry. Some of it has to do with the fact that we're just now um, teaching the industry about who we are and what our impact is. Um, And part of it is that the recognition of our influence our power is just beginning to express itself. Most people don't realize, you know, think about it. They think we all just got here. They don't realize that the fastest growing uh, percentage of the population is uh, young Latinas and Latinos who were born here Mm -hmm. and who are now that magic demographic that everybody in the entertainment industry wants to capture. And part of it is a lack of understanding about how to reach us about language and identity, all the things we talked about before, you know, the fact that we're a complicated um, uh, group of people. Um, We're not, as people say, we're not all, we're not a monolith and we're, and it takes a while. I'm a very hard worker and I definitely recognize that you have a limited amount of time on this earth, but I'm very patient about change. And so it takes time. And, and you all, uh, are the the people who are listening and you are the are the the solution I, I have no illusions that i'm that my impact in this industry and in these cultural institutions is as a door opener for other people to walk through mm-hmm. and i'm going to depend upon the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that to um, to walk through that door and to continue to create change. I want to personally thank you, Henry, for all the work you have done and continue to do for our community. I want to thank you for all the check signing you do. Y'all have heard me say it before. It's nice to receive fat checks, but nothing changes until people who look like us are signing them. And so thank you, Henry, for keeping your heart open and signing those checks. Henry hopes the doors of the National Museum of the American Latino will open one day on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., so that we can all witness the legacy that our beautiful community has accomplished. And I know we will see this happen. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriella Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Peace and love. Peace and love.